Hello everyone and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? I'm here again, once again with Baz. How are you doing, Baz? I'm really good, mate. I'm squeaking and rustling in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> and it's special guest time as well, because we've got Zach, aka Jelly Muppet, off of Twitter, probably best known for his uh, OSR fantasy horror, I'm going to say, Best Left Buried. How are you doing, Zach? Yeah, hey, how are you guys doing? Yeah, we're living the dream. So, one of our key questions that we've asked a lot of people recently, and you may be able to answer this, is... I've introduced your game as kind of OSR. Would you yeah. say it's OSR? And if so, what is OSR? Because that seems to be the perennial question. Well, what, what does it mean to that's you? A, that's a can of worms. Uh, so that's that's a really <laughs> complicated. Yes. Yeah, so uh, yes, my game is OSR. If not OSR, then like OSR adjacent. Um, I think a lot of people tend to think of the OSR as very strictly being kind of based around BX D and D hacks, which. Uh, I'm not really for. I played BX once. I thought it was okay. I didn't actually play BX. I played Gavin Norman's Old School Essentials, or what's it called now? Basic. Oh, yeah. Well, it's Old, old School Essentials is the unit. Yeah. Best of Buried is a fantasy, horror, rules, light, old school style game. I prefer to call it. I, I don't like throwing OSR on everything. I think it's a useful label, but I think it's more of a. A community than a or an art school than a full movement because I think there's lots of bits of it happening in different places, especially in your kind of a uh, post G plus era that you want to talk about. Uh, my favourite kind of uh, I think it was Throne of Salt had did quite a good blog post today actually, where uh, he broke down all of the different sub-movements within the old school revolution of which he identified there were something like 15 different movements right. with like names and examples of games and stuff so if you were to classify my game via those rules which he tweeted today I think I am a new, new school old school slash dog night game which is just the most <laughs> inside means, yeah. baseball nonsense that you could possibly pay attention to. So do I like... I, I think I like a lot of things about the movement, but I don't tie myself religiously to only make stuff that is old school related. I think that Best Left Buried is quite a lot of a... It's quite story game influenced, sort of. I, I don't think of it as a PBTA game, but a lot of people say is this powered by the apocalypse? And I go, well, no, not really, but it can be if you want it to be. So to answer your question, yes, but no, subtext. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, so about Best Left Buried then, in particular, if it's a fantasy game of sorts, what makes it different? What's your unique selling point about this particular flavour of game? Uh, so I think there's three things that really... Probably the most important thing when you notice when you first look at it is that it's really short uh, for compared to a lot of the games out there. Uh, it's not like an ultra rules-like game, but we keep the core rules with all the flavour text and all the art around 50 pages, which I think is kind of a sweet point of having enough for you to work with, whereas not being super meaty and requiring you to read several hundred pages of literature before you want to start playing. Uh, the kind of thematic thing which makes it stand apart is that it's... Uh, about thinking about how horrible adventuring would actually be if you ever did it in something resembling real life like it's dark dungeons are full of horrible monsters everything wants to eat you fighting stuff is usually a really bad idea and getting injured is pretty horrible 
so it's about kind of taking that dungeoneering scenario specifically extracting that from role playing and then realising that would be really scary and turning it into kind of a horror game so uh, looking at adding long term consequences to injuries you can't just uh, you know get away with a long rest your characters kind of develop what we call afflictions over time which are sort of problems that they develop and coping mechanisms that they come up with to um, resist the horrors of the crypt and then the other thing that kind of makes the game stand apart is the it's got a modular character and monster building system the idea being for the monsters is that you can't really have a monster manual and be scared of a monster manual if you know that a troll is on page 79 of the monster manual and it kind of has this many hit points and that's the armor class and it regenerates until you hit with fire and acid you can't be scared by a troll anymore unless somebody takes it and makes it a thing that isn't a troll in which why are you calling it a troll question mark so the idea is that you kind of make all these crazy bespoke monsters that kind of exist outside of your standard Dungeons and Dragons-esque canon and then use those to freak out your players so yeah that's the unique selling points <laughs> good that you have uh, several of them and you've also noted that you're, you're here hot off the press from releasing a new kickstarter for beneath the missing sea so how's that um is that development of your latest your previous game or is this a whole new game in its own right yeah so it's an adventure for best left buried and also you can use it without any issue with any other uh, old school sword dream uh, fantasy role-playing games without any issue uh, we've done some adventures before for the system that were kind of uh, zine based so mini zines so the idea it's a one page dungeon that is everything you need to play an evening of D&D just on one piece of paper uh, no page flipping no big tomes as much as we like those they're a bit hard to carry to game night if it's not in your house uh, so kind of adventures for the away game I guess is what I've been <laughs> thinking of it so moving beyond that kind of format I wanted to do something that was a bit longer and kind of explore a hex crawl adventure uh, that kind of goes a bit away from the dungeon and kind of gives you an overworld to play with and the adventure itself is set in a uh, recently drained sea uh, so like some magical event has happened and it's kind of all this, the water's vanished from this ocean and suddenly you've got a enormous kind of desert full of all these dying ex-aquatic creatures uh, and shipwrecks and merfolk palaces and angler goblins and stuff uh, and then it's about your crypt diggers, your professional adventurers going let's have a let's have a crack at that that looks really fun to go and well not fun, looks lucrative I guess being the operative word for your adventurers and they can go and explore that. So that project's Beneath the Missing Sea, hit Kickstarter about five hours ago as if we recorded this so I'm sure by the time it's been edited we will all be fully funded, hopefully. No doubt. Touch touch wood. How much are you asking for? Let's have a look. Uh it was I think it's two and a half thousand pounds for a cool. and then and that that will get you that's for the adventure and there'll be more stretch goals and then it's a hardcover book that's about twenty quid. Nice. This sounds like um you were saying you're experimenting with hex crawl there and <laughs> it is kind of like your development of games around doing new stuff is that kind of like one of your design goals yourself that you want to try doing different things or you look at what other people are doing and thinking I want to have a stab at that or are you just doing whatever comes into your head so one of the things that really drives me as a game designer is that I'm really information design is really important to me 
So what I want to do is I want to make these books which are about having kind of as much density as you can get. So we started that by taking the purest form of the of the smallest amount of content you could get and trying to put as much information in it as we could. So literally one piece of paper, all your runes, all of your keys, all of your monsters, and so a bit of art as well and a map. So you've got everything you need to run that one adventure. So that was that was the last product that we made. That's kind of how can we apply as much information, conceptual and gameable density to one piece of paper as we can. So that was like trying to push the boat out there. And they were like, okay, so we've done that with one piece of paper. We've pushed as much as we can into that piece of paper. How much stuff can we fit into a book by using the same principles in terms of how we edit sentences, how we do layout, how we make sure there's minimized page flipping for it. You know, what uh, diagrams and keys can we use? I don't know if you guys have ever read or played Mothership Mothership or Mothership Mm -hmm. Dead Planet. Uh, that's a real big touchstone for me. I kind of want to take the information design lessons learned from a book like that and then apply it to kind of a fantasy adventure, uh, which is, I, I think that there's a couple of like companies, I think the OSR is the leading place for that kind of information design at the moment mm-hmm. because we feel like we don't need to make, as, a, as like a, a movement in inverted commas, these big 400, 500 page books that you want to see on a shelf. We're kind of a bit free to experiment with how much can we push this down and make like the smallest, best product that we can. And I guess part of that movement is seeing books like the kind of Soul Muppet ones, which is the company that I work for, and um, Gavin Norman, who does Basic Essentials, is a, a, a another person who's kind of pushing the boat out there. And then the Mothership guys like Sean McCoy, uh, really big fan of those kind of works and wanting to sort of yeah do something new with an adventure so I do, I'd not done a hex crawl and I did want to do a hex crawl because I'd only written like these one page dungeons so far yeah it's kind of about making sure that every time I make a new book especially when it's something that I'm asking people to pay a lot of money for that it does something that I like to think a book hasn't done before so can I come up with an idea that no one's done yet and can I come up with a piece of information design or a a new technique in creating a book that hasn't been used before and can I come up with new mechanics as well that's probably the least important to me I'm mostly bothered about the density stuff and the yeah the the three kind of kind times of density I see which is have I written this to have as much information as possible does the information have as many ideas as possible and the ideas that I've written can they be used at the table all at the same time so by layering those three tenets on top of each other, you're making this book that is as tight as it can be. Where's this stuff come from? Are you coming at this from uh, from out of a gaming group? I mean, I guess what was the origin of, of moving between uh, a consumer or a gamer into being a designer and publisher? Uh, yeah, so I played a lot of D&D 5e and I was getting really frustrated with uh, the stuff I, the, the kind of stuff I talked about. My players knew the monster manual better than me. I had a one of my players told me that I got the DC of an Abaleth poison save incorrect when I was running a 5e game and I was like well for starters your character shouldn't even know that an Abaleth exists what are you talking about and you just like and it, it was it, it was a big like um, faux pas by him it annoys me to this day it was four and a half years ago 
And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that. I'm, I'm over, you're over it now, thankfully. Yeah, I'm over it now, thank God. Uh, and kind of like how characters could just rest for a night and get back. And I hadn't really found any like OSR stuff. I think I'd the only, I think the, the only non D and D game I played when I started writing Best Left Buried was Fate Accelerated, mm. which is a, definitely a different kind of game to what I ended up writing and then I sort of fell into all the old school stuff after Best Left Buried was written as a majority which is really strange because it fits kind of quite well into that movement so I I made that book about a year ago and since then I've written three books myself well four or five books depending on if you count different versions of the same thing box in a different way and uh, then I've, what I'm kind of doing at the moment is that I've got a full-time job as a doing office stuff. And I, if I write a book myself, it takes me six months to write it. Whereas if I find someone who I agree with to write it for me and to kind of work on that project, I can focus on project management stuff, printing, the editing process, which I find a lot more rewarding for me than the writing process kind of mm-hmm. taking other people's work and sort of looking at it and going well I like this what could I have done how can we improve it how can we maximise those densities I was talking about and um, since in the last month or so we've started publishing other people's books within the OSR community picking up stuff that would otherwise go on drive for RPG or just stick in a PDF and not see printed at all and kind mm-hmm. of organising small print runs of that getting it out to people Putting it in a in a in web stores like Marsonian Arts Council and Exotic Funeral and places where those books can see kind of like a new lease of life. So I started off like writing my own stuff, then I started hiring people to write stuff, and since then I've kind of gone around asking people if they want their books printing, which is a really nice experience because they usually say yes, and then I get to make a really cool book. Yeah. So print printing's really important to you, isn't it? That that having stuff on a page and and not just print on demand either. Am I right in saying that that you know offset and traditional book binding and that kind of is important in your world? So I think there really is a place for print on demand. I think that it's an incredible service, and I think that companies like Lulu and Drive for RPG have really helped a lot of uh, self-publishers get off the ground. Uh, and I think it's been. I don't think I'm any part of the indie RPG movement would be where it is if those services weren't offered. But at the sure. same time, I think there's a time and a place for them. And I think that the printing that you can get through offset or even short-run digital uh, printing is really effective and really cheap now compared to what it used to be. Mm-hmm. So if I print a... W- without getting too much mathsy, if you're selling more than about 50 copies ever and you're happy to talk to uh, like an independent distributor or set up your own like Gumroad or Etsy or something like that for books and you've kind of got traffic you can drive to there as a creator I think that print on demand is a really easy thing to escape if you want Mm. it's a lot harder because you need you need money to fund a print run but my first print run that I did uh, cost me £61 for 50 best left buried and that's a 50 page book that's in quite high quality as well so Mm considering that that you need to sell like that's that book i charged a fiver for it back in the day if i sold 12 books out of the 50 i printed then 
it wasn't a problem and considering that I know it, that's not the kind of money that's available for everyone but if role playing games is a hobby and it's something that you're passionate about and that you kind of want to get out there you don't need to be reliant on print on demand or PDF to make that happen like it is really easy to organise small print runs mm. and I'm I, as much as I like plugging myself if anybody does have any questions about this kind of technical printing world which I'm happy to talk to anybody about this sort of thing you can pop on over to my discord server or find uh, if or go on my website I love talking to uh, creators about this sort of thing giving advice on how best to organize those print runs who to talk to about actually selling the books and stuff like that I think it's it's not the thing for everyone if you are like a hobbyist and you just want to write things and you want to have pdfs of your books or that's totally I don't think that's like not the right way to do it but you really shouldn't be intimidated as a creator if you are a creator by by the kind of print process or the sort of contracting process there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to get it done in this internet era that can be really effective that's was one of the things that where I, I sort of met you recently as well is in Nottingham. You've got, um, I'll get the name wrong, but it's like a game design forum or meetup, I want to say. This is not necessarily RPG focused, but it was interesting mm-hmm. to go there and speak to lots of people like yourself. You seem like, uh, it seems like there's a real cottage industry out there, which I perhaps didn't recognise from, it's hard from Twitter to get a gauge of how many real people are actually doing stuff <laughs> rather than yeah. talking about it. So it's good to go to our pub room and actually meet real life people who are doing a thing or several things and swapping ideas and copy editors and how to design and all that kind of stuff so can you talk a little bit more about that sort of space and how important that is yeah so um, I live in Nottingham I live and work in Nottingham and uh, so do you as well I think as uh, mm-hmm. so what I go to quite regularly is the Nottingham Tabletop Industry Collective it's called uh, I think it's like Tabletop IC or Tabletop underscore IC on Twitter but if you google that you'll get to something hopefully it's basically a, um, a local kind of guild of people who make stuff to do with role-playing games so every cons- oh no sorry tabletop games in general so that it goes across card games board games war, war games role-playing games and there's a lot of miniature stuff in Nottingham because Games Workshop is mm-hmm. set up there so basically everyone who used to work at Games Workshop or doesn't anymore who wants to work at Games Workshop or is kind of associated with the numerous cottage industries around Nottingham we kind of come to this event and uh it's uh, it's not like you don't have to pay to enter anything. There's no dues. You just turn up. There's a Wednesday morning session every month. And there's also an evening in a pub that's always on a different day. And uh, it's just a great chance to meet other people uh, who are kind of maybe not doing the exact same thing as you. But if you're going there on a on to one of those events, there is somebody there who will be doing something similar to you if you're in tabletop games and will have already made the mistakes that you might be about to make and you can ask them about how to do stuff. So I found my printer that I use now by asking someone at one of those meetings who they used for their printing. And like I'm now 25 print runs deep with that printer and kind of meeting other freelancers, people you can talk to. So it's a really good chance to network with other sort of industry creatives. Or if you are just want to learn about, if you're someone who just enjoys tabletop games, you want to kind of see how the pie is made or whatever the metaphor is it's a really good chance to go there and kind of talk to other designers as well but yeah it's my, one of my favourite things about Nottingham is how vibrant the uh, the community of makers there is for sure it seems quite interesting that although you're probably um, an indie developer I guess we'd call it something like that I don't know from 
<clears throat> from the outside in, you seem like one of the sort of like cottage industries, as I've sort of used that phrase before, but you're already publishing other people and that kind of stuff. And that seems like a really uh, interesting take that a lot of people still seem to think you've got to make uh, a big, massive hide book and use a distribution chain and things like that to get to roleplay, which is probably like the worst way of trying to get into roleplay and make any money at all. And uh, being an independent, so to speak, is probably a much better route of starting to get going. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. I don't think it's the only way. I think there's lots of ways to get stuff done. But the, the, I wanted to do the publishing for me because I, there was a lot of people who I really admired who uh, didn't have the confidence to approach the confidence or the capital to approach the kind of print runs that that w- could be easy for them if they just had a bit of confidence. So by going to those people and saying, "Hey, you've got a really good book. Do you want me to help you make it happen?" was that felt really good for me because I. I've not published these books because I think they're going to make me loads of money. Like, they're not. It's It will make me a little bit of money, but if I was printing my own stuff, my own margins would be much better than if I was working with other people. Mm. It means I can make books quicker, but the main reason that I'm talking to these guys is that I really love the books they're making, and I get to kind of make that thing happen. Like The first time that you ever like get a shipment of like 100 books that you've written and they arrive on your desk and you take them out of the box and the printing company go this is real I'm a, I'm a role playing game person now you know like that doesn't you only get to have that once and by making that happen for a person that was just something I wanted to do so it, it sounds so ridiculous like I just want to no, just want to cool. make people happy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're going to regret it when we start sending your stuff to print <laughs> if you if you want me to do a print run of King of Dungeons, I will absolutely do that for you. I was I was looking. I was like, why are you doing that on print on demand? That's silly. <laughs> because it's intimidating if you've never done it before, and all of those things that you said. <laughs> yeah, because it, it is. Be. I mean, in some ways, it's never been easier to write role playing stuff. It's never yeah. been easier because everybody you can do it on your phone for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's never been easier. But there's still. There's still a bunch of unknowns, you know. If you're happy writing about like beholders and orcs in a in a sewer in your bedroom, there's a world of difference between that and you, and you kind of sit there and imagine what? Well, how do I get it from there to Waterstones? And that that is still a big ask, you know, for people. That, oh, that totally. Is. And, and it and it's it's also I don't know about I don't know about you. Maybe you're more confident than I am. But I never wanted to go walk into a print shop and go, uh, "Could you print this for me?" And someone go, "Sure, what's it about?" <laughs> uh, that's why you're on the internet. I don't have to. I don't have to answer any of those kind of questions. So I just sort of say, "Well, here's my website. Look it up." Um, yeah. How many copies of King of Dungeons did you sell on Kickstarter? Uh, Seven hundred and seventy-seven, to be exact. That is more. That is more best left buried books than I think I will have sold in lifetime on that Kickstarter. So in terms of the scale, just through drive through afterwards, it's well, it's the grand total as of right now is nine hundred ninety nine. You're you're a you're a bigger role playing game publisher than me, mate. I know, I know, and I did it the stupid way. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's intimidating. It really, is intimidating. If you don't know what you're doing, then uh, it's really easy to make a mistake with a large amount of money and ruin it because the thing is that drive through RPG is good for is that you kind of it basically means that if you can make a PDF that fits their printing quality standards you can't screw up a Kickstarter mm. you, you can't you just can't you, you upload the PDF you check it works with a proof bam done whereas when I'm doing a Kickstarter there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong unless I'm really confident about the people I'm working with the printing process and 
it's kind of harder to get proofs for these short digital runs so yeah there's, there's, a, there's a time and a place for it but for me about 500 copies is when I'd start looking at not even the kind of digital printing idea but then an offset print run and it makes mm. me just want to talk about printing on a podcast for an hour which I'm sure that <laughs> your fans would just find incredibly interesting both of them would be well into it, Charles. <laughs> yeah. There's another podcast there, aren't there, for that we'll share. So I've sort of mentioned that you've got people who dream these things up in the bedrooms like Baz and write about orgs quite happily, and you publish books. But in between that, there's other bits for aspiring content producers, for example, editing or uh, design or graphic layout or things like that. So on a tight budget, where does that kind of thing fit in as well? The, like, the aspiring game is I have to come up with all that stuff and then deliver you a finished product, or how do you get from... I've got the words down, they're all tight and dense and lovely and usable at the table, and I know a guy who can print these and sell them, but presumably at some point you need someone to do some art or to graphic design or some layout or some editing or some oh, proofreading yeah. or some, you know, maybe even just playtesting or something. So where does that middle bit fit? <laughs> that was like, mate, that was like six questions, Christ. Uh, okay, so... Yeah, roll a D6 and so on. First thing on the list <laughs> It's is, a wondering uh, question table. <laughs> we could do a randomly generated podcast. That would be good. Uh, right. We always have done. <laughs> Back to the board. It's not like we've got a structure going, is it? Uh, so, first things first. I think play testing is probably quite important. I think that I think that's the most underappreciated part of games design. I don't think you have to do it. I think there's certain kind of games where you don't need to. But if you're if you've got if your game has more than about three moving pieces, then you probably want to play test it a fair amount. I think I played probably twenty or thirty games of Best Left Buried before I ever print it before I ever put it out in PDF form. Uh, I think that there's a lot of like stuff in there, there's a lot of resources you can find online about how to play test. But I think the important thing isn't playtesting for balance because that's kind of something you could do quite late on. It's playtesting for how easy is it for someone to understand these rules. So mm-hmm. I, I still get the same three questions. So every time I did a better pro playtest, I got the same three questions. And I was like, okay, but what I've written doesn't work if I'm still getting that question. I need to read, mm-hmm. I need to factor that question into it. And the other thing is, is that there's quite a lot of things I think editing is quite important as well in this kind of space is that when you've written something a lot of information that exists in your head but possibly not on the paper always that it's important for someone else to actually playtest the game for you almost so that they're playtesting of what's on the piece of paper rather than what exists in the creator's head so I think that's a thing that can fall out quite quickly when you get some editing and some playtesting in. And that's really important. I, I So I uh, I added medicine to the Best Left Buried rules. It was just on the equipment table. And then I didn't realise till six months later that I hadn't actually said in the book what medicine did. Because mm-hmm. I knew that I'd use the medicine rules for maze rats because that's what the game is a hack of. So I knew that it, it re- healed one vigour once per day because... I thought I'd written that down, but I never did. Yeah. And I got loads of people saying, well, "How does that rule work?" And then I wrote it in eventually. But it's that's that can be an embarrassing. You can have like embarrassing bits like that. So I think that editing is really. You you when I say an editor, you don't need to pay like a. Um, you don't need to pay an editor six pence a word to to 
you know, do a full developmental editing pass and a copy pass and a proof pass of your book if it's like a first time affair. I would definitely get three or four people to read it with the intention of like picking it apart. And you know, you've got that friend who's a rules lawyer. Get mm-hmm. get them to read it <laughs> because there'll be there'll be gits about it, and they'll go, "Well, how does this work? How do I break this bit?" And they're the kind of people you kind of want doing it. If you can't afford to pay some professional, find a rules lawyer. Uh, they tend to be pretty thick on the ground <laughs> in the kind of circles that we hang out in. I think. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what were the other questions? Art. Yeah, art, especially with your approach where your art and your words are part of the same page, which sounds yeah. like a stupid thing to say, but if you're going for the information density, if you if you're working around imagery and layout and design simultaneously, that problem. So when I was writing some of the later best of brace stuff, what I and the zinis in particular is what I started doing is I started with any art I knew I was going to have, and then I kind of had a sketchbook almost where I'd say this is where this piece of art is going this is what rule I want to be covered on this page that's how many words I have don't go over that word count or leave a load of space mm-hmm. so kind of thinking about what the page is going to look like before you start writing is really helpful I wouldn't re- recommend writing directly into a layout software because that's that's a bad idea you want to be in a word process probably people do do write into layout software but it can be a bit of a nightmare uh, so you want to like Kigito Ergo Sum or whatever a the, the the gap the space you want in the book and then kind of work out well can I actually fit the rule in that page mm-hmm. and then also the other layout thing to think about is that games work best all the all the best laid out games tend to have everything you need for a rule on like two facing pieces of paper in a book yeah. so when you've got it open that's all you need so the armor rules are on one page or the spells for this school of magic are on one page because that means that you're not kind of that minimizes the page for a thing. That's like a really help. If you can, if that's like called control panels or spread based design, which can be really helpful to kind of level up a book, turn it from just like a two column word document into something that's been laid out nice. And if you know where the art's going to go as well, that really helps. Uh, in terms of getting art, uh, there's loads of really good public domain art on the moment. I don't use it in my books myself because I have kind of like a a living artist who I share profits with so that's how I paid for my early work I said I went to an artist who I knew was a friend of mine and said hey you do me art for this book and I'll give you half the money that book makes until one of us dies and then the rest whatever um, and then that's kind of the model which I used doesn't work for everyone because you kind of need someone who you know you're not going to be able to it's going to be quite hard to get a random person from the internet to agree to that especially if they're a successful artist already those kind of people if will want commissioned rates for that but if you've got someone you know who will do art for you that's a really good model to go with some kind of like royalty based model uh, can work really well so probably the other thing I want to mention moving away from the probably the technicalities though uh, but just something to pick up on and what you were saying about um, your core products about being about horror although fantasy game so this is a perennial question but how do you get horror into a game like because you can't I don't know how you can horrify players per se or is that a thing you try and do like how how do you make a game horrifying for the characters anyway and probably the players a bit to get the feeling there's a couple of things you can do uh, the, the easiest way to put in a uh, you are scared rule is to put in like is like the most boring way to do it which is like 
something scary happens you roll a dice and if you fail then your character is scared and can't do anything that turn like that's not exactly that doesn't really get you anywhere basically what my my methodology for this is that is is the opposite of what you were saying where you you can't there's no point trying to scare characters and tell a character you can't tell a player that a character is scared and actually communicate that you need to go over that that the, the, the character is an entity and you just need to target the player immediately right so there's a couple of things psychologically that you can do to do that the first thing I wanted to do with Best Set is strip out all the mechanical mumbo jumbo and kind of reduce it to as few levers as possible so you want to have monsters that um create a threat to the players to the characters rather and then when the characters are threatened the player feels threatened right so you don't and you, but you don't want to spend a load of time telling the player what the character feels you kind of just want to wire this bullet straight in on the player so once you've stripped out all the all the mechanics you want to give them a couple of things that they're tracking on the character which make them worried about if the character's going to make it or not so health is a really easy example of that but the other thing that Best Left Braid does is basically like a second resource which is um, called grip which you basically use for spells re-rolls and to kind of resist scary things right and as you when you start having those two numbers which are like your red and blue health bars as they start like moving around in a combat and they start going closer to zero that creates like this quite primal fear it's not like a sort of you, you want to introduce like threat and then target numbers and then target players as well and then the other thing is that fear of the unknown is like the most powerful thing in a role playing game especially easy in a dungeon that's very dark and full of things that want to eat you that's really easy to play on I actually have a really I, I advise in Best Left Buried there to be a quite low number of monsters so let's say you're watching Alien, right? Alien is scary because there's a xenomorph and it wants to eat you and it can do anything and there's nothing you can do to stop it, right? That's actually... It's a scary scenario, but it's quite hard because Ripley only wins by like cheating and MacGyvering and being really intelligent and smarter than everyone else. And that's the kind of place that you want to put that, your players them having to outwit the monster otherwise they can't win and actually have to do something to solve the monster like it's a puzzle or a trap rather than a sack of hit points that you just attack um, yeah and I guess the, there's quite a small number of monsters as well because if there's lots of something it's not scary if it's abundant then it doesn't have that kind of fear of the unknown and it means that you've kind of got empty rooms or rooms that have less stuff in them than a typical dungeon because that allows you to kind of do jump scares and stuff like that. This is I could talk about this topic for so long. I've, there's like of the in the best of Brave Doomsayers guide, there's like fifteen to twenty pages on specific horror dungeon design. About kind of like seeding information and creating monsters with weaknesses and kind of leveraging non-mechanical difficulty into the game through stuff like having monsters that are flavorful because they are they have an abundance or a lack of a certain characteristic like uh, information intelligence coordination movement aggression kind of stuff like that 
And by playing with those levers, you can create a dungeon that's got lots of moving components. It could be quite scary. I don't know if you've seen the new um, Alien RPG that's come out from Free League, but I quite like that. One of the things, because that has literally got the Xenomorph in it, or various Xenomorphs. Um, and the way they handle the creature is that it's got a D6 table, so you roll on that every turn to see what it does. And yeah. it has like two attacks a turn or whatever, it attacks the inverted commerce. But I like that, because one of them is sort of like hissing at you, which is sort of the things that happen in the movie. So I like that. And that, you know, mechanically gives your character a point of stress. And as your stress builds up, there's more chance that you're going to panic or whatever else. So um, there's some elements of what you're talking about in that, that you don't know what the creature does. Uh, even as the GM, you're not quite sure. You have to roll the dice to see what it does. It might be rent the airlock up, and it might be hiss, or it might be just like, you know, stick the tail through someone's heart and kill them instantly. You just never know. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> Can't wait. I'm going to get sued by Free League now. Oh, no. <laughs> but I did like the... Um, I think one of the things... I think Basil mentioned this before in the past is that having asymmetrical games is good as well, where the GM's got a different set of rules than the players have. So you don't have to play on the same yeah, l- playing field. You know, you've got... You want the rules to do the things that your role wants you to do. So if you're running monsters, you shouldn't necessarily have to abide by the same rules the players do because you need to do a different function with the monster. The monster's not worried about levelling up or gaining treasure or surviving the dungeon. He's got his own goals, right? Yeah, totally. I think behaviour is really important in dungeon design, like thinking about how monsters actually act. I think that, especially in the kind of old school games I like playing, if they all attack when you first see them, then for starters you're going to get gribbled. I think like it's more interesting when the monsters kind of give you some space to move. So having those kind of tables where it doesn't just do like the most mathematically efficient thing every time because with a monster like the Xenomorph it will just eat you immediately and you won't get to do anything. So I think those kind of like tables to make sure that the monster kind of doesn't always act in the most rational way possible is really important because like I guess that's part of the I think there's different types of asymmetry that you were talking about. There's kind of like there's rules asymmetry, there's also information asymmetry because if the, the the monster shouldn't know everything the dungeon master knows, I think there's a danger that we often let we often let monsters have optimized behavior or deliberately sub-optimizing them so that we don't kill players. Whereas having mm. randomly generated monster behavior is kind of a good workaround to that because it kind of will act rationally, but well, like with, with, with a semblance of rationality that's kind of removed from it's going to do what I want. I've got puppets on strings. It's kind of you're kind of just winding up toys and letting them kind of walk around the dungeon and you know if the players get stood on then that's what happens so it's like creating a little AI for the, the bad guys almost so you give yeah. it a set of parameters to work within but then you don't say which one it does you just let the the face decide or whatever a random roster decide that I guess yeah definitely that's really interesting yeah I mean we've all done it though haven't we we've all had like in traditional games you've got like a bunch of orcs attacking the party and you kind of you can't help but start to pull your punches or, you know, your orc could attack anyone, so which one is it? And you might go, oh, I don't know, I'll go for the... Oh, Christ, I can't go for the wizard. He'll go down in one go. Yeah. All right, I'll attack the fighter. And and all that that happens in your head as a GM. But, you know, sometimes if you want to make a little random AI, just roll to see who you attack, and it could be completely random. Mm-hmm. People are terrified of dice rolls. <laughs> I do that I do that quite a lot, like roll dice to see who a monster's going to attack, just because I yeah. don't want to... With... with um, it can be so lethal in the kind of old school games that I tend to play so and like just feeling like I'm picking on someone or deliberately not picking on someone just makes it feel really unfair so yeah, yeah. rolling dice or like some kind of AI is quite a good option I'm going to look into that it's a really yeah. interesting idea 
Yeah, I like I like the picking people with roller dice rolls. I was doing that in the crack when I was winning some games there for whatever it was. Because people were looking at me like, don't attack me with that thing. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm just going to roll. Like, it's not my fault. It's not <laughs> yeah. me, it's the monster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even if it was the same guy three times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now going to roll to see if he stops and eats. <laughs> and I'll just knock you out. <laughs> cool. So you've already mentioned several other things in passing there. What what are the good or good examples of products that you've sent out there that you recommend to our listeners then, Zach? I'll limit myself to three. So first thing that I would check out is Troika by Marsonian Arts Council. Uh, Troika is a science fantasy planescape-esque kind of old school British game that's kind of that's being made by a company called the Marsonian Arts Council. Uh, you kind of play a bunch of pre-generated characters, well pre-generated backgrounds rather than pre-generated characters. It's a retro clone, but rather than being a retro clone of like old school D and D, it's a retro clone of old school fighting fantasy, which is so you know all your Steve Jackson books are like that. That's really cool. Uh, it's got great art, and it's um, got it's just pretty solid book. I love that. Uh, second thing I'd recommend is uh, Electric Bastion Land. Just hit Kickstarter this month, so that is the follow up to Into the Odd, which is one of the kind of OSR big hitters. Uh, it, that is. Best Left Buried's granddad, uh, the game that Best Left Buried was a hack of, is a hack of Into the Odd. So that's <laughs> Maze Rats is in the middle there, and uh, yeah, that's Chris McDowell. He's like a British game designer, and his Kickstarter is doing really well at the moment. Yeah, we did a whole podcast on it. Layer listers can spin back. That's going to be amazing. Uh, I've I've backed that Kickstarter, and then finally the last one I would say is a uh, little bit weird, a different genre. Uh, Girl Underground is really good. I think it's either Girl Underground or The Girl Underground. You guys come across that before? I recognise the name. Is that... Yeah, go on. It's a... Yeah, it's a powered by the underground, uh, like, Alice in Wonderland game. I have got... Yeah, I do know that one now. I just didn't recognise the title. Yeah, yeah. it's written by Jesse Ross and then a person whose name I can't remember. Laura McMahon. Yes, that sounds right. So yeah, that's really good. Uh, it's a quite nicely put together book. It was funded in like Zine Quest last year. Kind of the most fun I've had reading a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Um, not normally my kind of thing, but I think I'll take that and play it at the table. And then the other two quick ones I've already mentioned: Mothership and BX Essentials uh, slash Old School Essentials. Uh, those books are amazing. So check those out. So do you um, do you obviously play any? <laughs> I don't say to use the word mainstream. Bit. But given that I've mentioned things like free legal and, and you know there's lots of the big boys and inverted covers, so we're still only like two or three people in the shed when it comes to RPG companies. But still, some of the bigger companies. You play more mainstream games, or did you like still swim in the the more indie homegrown kind of market? Do you think there's anything still to be learned from the bigger games? I think because I think probably it's... yeah, no, totally. I play I played a lot five E. Uh, I haven't played that in about a year, but I've probably played like three, four, five hundred hours of that or something. So that was where I got started. Not much mainstream stuff at the moment. I've read a lot of the free league games. I love Tales from the Loop. Uh, that's good. But I've not really done much mainstream stuff, mainly because I just don't have any time to read big books anymore. I think Blades in the Dark is probably the 
most mainstream thing I've played recently. But even then, that's probably mm. by D and D standards, that's still pretty yeah. tiny. But then, so are all games compared to D and D. Yeah. But no, uh, not really. What is there to still learn from um, those kind of books? I mean, I think it might be the other way around. I mean, I'll mention a couple of games now. Although I've liked both of them, recent rebates, there's Warhammer the Fourth Edition has come out. Oh, love it. Um, love it. Yeah. yeah. And Vampire V5. And I think, I'm, I think I'm coming to the conclusion that, that my love for both those games is more about the nostalgia about when I used to play it. And although I've run both quite a bit at conventions recently, as I get into it, I think there's far too many rules in them. Yeah. And actually, they could do with, they feel a little bit over engineered, if I'm being honest. Certainly, for, maybe if you're in a campaign, it might be different if you get into it and want to learn all the nuts and bolts. But no. I think certainly for one shots, they both feel like they've got too many rules. I don't know whether that's something do you feel like less rules is a feature, or I mean, like how many things do you have to take care of to have rules for everything? I love rules like games. I think there's a real space for like rules, like the kind of the more traditional long form stuff. I've played a lot of them certainly, so I think there's definitely. A space for it. I think if you're running a long campaign, it can be really helpful to stuff a big old massive rule book. But kind of my playstyle kind of lends more to kind of like five to six game campaigns or one shots. So I tend to enjoy those smaller books more. I've I've heard good things about Warhammer Fourth Edition. Uh, I got stuck. My first ever role playing game was Warhammer Second Edition when I was like, how old would I have been? Like ten or something at the time it came out. So that was me, like trying to GM second edition. But I'm, I've not. I think there's definitely like space for those big kind of books. I think that I think a lot of games kind of really suck at character customization. The smaller ones, or at least like there's not many rules to customize a character. So I think mm-hmm. kind of like those big, you can get just like big player options. Those books can be really fun. But at the same time, I think that if your core system is probably longer than about. 50 pages then it's in my opinion too complicated I think there's definitely a place for it it's just not the kind of game that I like playing in my own spare time it's not the kind of game I'd like to write either um, I'm quite a fan of tightly wound systems I'm not saying the big system can't be tightly wound but I think there's more space in there I think that, but I think also that big bigger books are better for newer gamers because kind of if you give someone like a really short old school role playing game uh, it can be quite overwhelming the amount of stuff that's kind of implied that you kind of have to work out how it works mm-hmm. I think that there is a place for I think, it's, I think it's one of the reasons that D&D 5 is so good is that those kind of three books do such a good job of like telling you sort of everything you need to know it takes you a long time to read it but it's less intimidating because you feel like if you had a question the answer is probably in the book somewhere. I don't think it would be, but it kind of helps that new player experience. So I think there's definitely a place for longer books, but the more that I've played, the lighter I want games to be. Kind of the more experience I've got, the less I feel a need to rely on those big rule books, if that makes sense. It does. I think when we first had the sort of British indie movement, I want to sort of go back, I don't know how old you've been, but... If you remember the collective endeavour, maybe so it was um, the time when Cold uh, Cold City Hot War kind of things were about. Um, uh, there's all kinds of games that were, that were made by a, a good British set of people, basically who supported each other. Duty and Honor, Dead of Night, that kind all of those thing, kind yeah. of games, yeah. Um, and it was just like it's a little bit like you've got going on now with like 
um, through sort of groups trying to support each other, just help each other out of stalls and all that kind of thing. But when those games were coming out, people were sort of asking me about what's that stuff you do when you GM? How do you describe it? How would you write that down? Because they kind of wanted to put it in books. And to me, it seemed obvious, and I couldn't articulate the things I do, the same as none of those guys could really do it properly either because they were trying to work out how to say it. So I think what I'm sort of hearing from you there, saying like, as you've got more experience in your glass reels, is that a lot of the stuff you need to know, you've already got internalised anyway. Yeah. So you don't need it written down for you. What you want is the, the new interesting stuff. Does that Exactly, sort of thing yeah. Want? It's what I was talking about earlier. Like, I don't need, to, when I'm writing a game, I don't need to write all that stuff down. I don't write all that stuff down because it exists in my brain. And it, but it's the same for reading. Like, I don't need to... I don't need to read another example of play that tells me how to interact a conversation between you know two players trying to break down a door. Like, I don't need that. I've got it in my head already. So I can just kind of rely on those shorter rule sets. But I think there's a place for someone who's never played role-playing games before. That kind of big, long book is so much more accessible, especially if it's got actually quite well-written advice about how to run and prepare games, which I think are... But the other way is that you can probably get most of that advice from the internet now. So does it need to be in a book if you're only going to read it once? But then it's easy to find because it's in a book and it's specific for your system. I kind of wish there was people did more in the way of kind of cataloguing useful information about role-playing games kind of in a central place because the, I don't, don't know how much experience you guys have got with like the Google Plus blogosphere. Mm. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's... Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys have, but... There's so much information on that in like ten year old articles that I wouldn't find if I wasn't a massive nerd. And I'm not the person who needs it. There's kind of newer people who might be able to use it a bit more. But I've only been playing role playing games for like five years, so Does uh, Best Left Buried have a and I'm ashamed to say I haven't looked at it. Is <laughs> does it have a what is a role playing game section at the start? No, I cut it. I cut it. Good no, I, I shouldn't have. I don't I think <laughs> I have an art. There's there's a couple of people on Twitter who I argue with about this constantly, like because it's a failure of accessibility if I've not explained what a role playing game is in the book. But at the same time, if you've reached the corner of the internet where you're on exaltedfuneral.com yeah. and you've managed to buy a hardcover best of very book and you don't know how Google works and you don't know what you've accidentally bought a role playing game book, you like my nan who yeah. thinks that I write novels. Like I don't. I write I write instruction manuals for people to pretend to be wizards. Um, and <laughs> I think that if you've ever got to the kind of stage where you're holding a, cop- a copy of the Cryptigger's Guide to Survival, which is the best left brain player handbook, you kind of already know what a role playing game is. Yeah, I hope so, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you do you do hear tell people will say when they talk about the origin story of getting into gaming back in the eighties and probably the nineties too that some well-meaning relative has bought like the D and D starter box for for a kid thinking it's got like a remote control car in it or something like that <laughs> yeah. people did used to stumble into the hobby and in, and in those kind of products you did need it and arguably they didn't do a fantastic job maybe they did with their little pamphlets of like you know start here here's a solo adventure but in our neck of the woods I mean really you know you don't <laughs> it's like buying a car and getting handed a piece of paper saying this is a car it can transport you places because <laughs> like, I knew that when I walked in <laughs> so I think that the first the first role playing game I ever like I said I was playing Woodthrop 2nd edition but I'd read Warlock of Firetop Mountain so I was trying to yeah. play Warhammer Fantasy role playing like it was Warlock of Firetop Mountain but I couldn't do it <laughs> I was just talking to myself <laughs> I was in my room like nine years old like trying to talk to myself and I'd read this 
because I was playing a lot of Warhammer at the time, so I'd read it and consumed this like 400 page book, but I didn't know what the artifact, what it was for. I didn't understand. I was like, I had to try to explain it to my brother. Like, we are meant to pretend to be people, and then we talk to other people who are also us. Because it didn't. That book didn't say what Games Master was, so we kind of just both yeah, did it. And then, like, 15 years later, I found that book in my attic. I was like, oh my god, I own a piece of history. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, I saw on Twitter. I think it was yesterday, the day before. I got tagged in something to say, can you help this guy out? And he's got Dungeons and Dragons and he's read it and he wants to run it for his 10 year old autistic stone, but he doesn't know what to do, having read the books. Uh, like, can you help me? He's like, well, not in 160 characters. So I had to send him some resources to help. So I think even though you've said the D&D books are good if you've read them, um, yeah, maybe, but also I think, I'm not sure that fifth edition's the best way into the hobby for some people because it's, it's a lot to read. And if you've never gamed before, and like your, your ten-year-old says, I want to do this, Daddy. It's quite hard for um, you know a middle-aged guy to pick those books up and work out what totally, to do. Yeah, the table. I, I'd recommend like Matt Colville or someone like that. Find someone you like That's on YouTube. Think, yeah. yeah, Matt Colville's yeah. really good. Yeah, and our podcast as well. Oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah. What with this Mark? Well, that goes without saying. Perfect yeah. solution to all. Uh, <laughs> if if you listen to like two hundred <laughs> hours of wisdom from here, I'm sure you'll eventually learn how to play role play games. <laughs> <laughs> or at least have to talk you, about it. You have them. to do all of that first. You're not allowed to roll up your character until you've done all 200 hours <laughs> and we've got a sign certificate. That's your apprenticeship. Those are the rules. <laughs> the longer you leave it, the more you're going to have to listen to it as well. So I'll get started early. That's my advice. So, okay, so I'm just conscious of time and we're nearly up. Um, so, what are you like if you had to give kind of like a, a D4 table of top tips for gaming or game design or even playing games, whatever it is? What's like your, your top D4 tips for gamers? Don't over prep. I think the best, all the best adventures that I've had have been like when I didn't plan anything and I just kind of went with it. I think I was a serial over prepper back when I used to play 5e and I had a couple of sessions where I just kind of players just did something I wasn't prepared for and then I had to improvise and it was so much more fun. Like, kind of just let the world grow around your players and remember that if you try to treat role playing games as a world building exercise then you're kind of like a lap. you're not letting players have the full potential of letting it be what they want it to be you're kind of imposing what you want on them rather than letting them just do stuff uh, the second thing I'd say is that I think that for me personally when it comes to running or writing games generalism is so boring like hyper specific genre is like the most interesting thing that you can put in front of me like I really don't want to play like or, or read another attempt at the same fantasy that I've like read or played hundreds of hours of. I kind of want something hyper specific with like the weirdest high concepts. I think that if you've played enough D and D, you can really like open up your. We well, played enough role playing games. You can open up your world by kind of just going down as many weird rabbit holes and finding as many weird indie games as you can. So like. I've been playing a lot of a game lately called Swivers, which is like Victorian, hyper-British, kind of like Guy Ritchie crime heist game, which is just such a niche genre that does one thing really well. I like how Blades is like trying to just make you, Blades in the Dark is trying to make you feel one thing. Ultraviolet Grasslands is like this heavy metal, psychedelic desert science fantasy, which no one's written that book before. Well, no one's read that book before for the first time they pick it up so that's kind of the 
what I want to both play and create. And then I guess I've got two more tips left. Yeah, don't be afraid. If you're making games, don't be afraid to ask other people who've already made games for help. Like, I think the worst way to make a mistake is to just walk into something and try solve a problem by hitting it with your face. Like, speak to people, make some, ask some questions before you make any big decisions. And then uh, my final um, my final recommendation is. If you are like role-playing games, don't spend any money between December and February because February is going to be Zine Quest uh, on Kickstarter again and you will be poor because everyone who is anyone is going to make a zine that month and you're going to have to pick the cream of the crop. So wait a bit on that purchase and then in the middle of February you can decide what you want to get. That'll be my recommendation. (laughs) That's my fourth one. Don't spend any money until February. Apart from a my Kickstarter. <laughs> How's your Kickstarter going? <laughs> okay, don't spend any money between the start of December and the middle of February. Because I'll have another Kickstarter in the middle of February, but that's not the point. Be careful. <laughs> Watch out for Zine Quest is my uh, is, is my advice. The top tip, and that of course leaves a little window at the end of November for Dragon. I presume you're gonna be there touting your games. Oh god, I've got I've 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 got I've I bought a double stand. I was there last year with one book and now I have twelve books. It's going to be a bit more wow. difficult. But yeah, uh, Soul Muppet Publishing will be at Dragon Meet. Uh, if you guys are in London, it's a really great day to come to. Are you guys coming? Yeah, yeah. we'll be there. And uh, people at Loose End should definitely go to the seminar track at 11am to hear our seminar on uh, how to win RPGs, being a better player. <laughs> Tell your friends. Follow up to being a better dungeon master from uh, from expert in that yeah, yeah that's right exactly we'll give you some flyers to point your store oh please actually please do I'd love to I'll, I'll, I've got those space <laughs> flyers I'll, I'll just I'll just put some books and throw them in the trash and put your flyers down that'll, that'll do <laughs> awesome oh, sounds amazing that'll be awesome I'll see you both there and any listeners as well everybody comes to Drug and Me come to our seminar visit the Soul Muppet stall back the kickstarters that we mentioned and uh, we'll see you all next time thanks very much for coming on Zach yeah thank you very much for having me and letting me talk yeah cheers Zach